Welcome back to the podcast, dear listener. This is Charlotte, Creative and Technical Director here at Evidence for Faith, and I hope you all had a great new year. Very excited about 2022 and all the new things coming. But today we are continuing in our Messianic Prophecies of the Old Testament. As always, this program is supported by listeners just like you. If you'd like to help support this broadcast and keep it free, you can donate at evidenceforfaith.org slash give. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org slash give. And here is Michael Lane in the Road to Emmaus, Messianic Prophecies of the Old Testament, Session 5. Welcome again to Evidence for Faith. This is Michael Lane, your host. I'm so glad you're joining us today. And I hope you're enjoying this series as we're doing uh, the road to Emmaus, the Old Testament prophecies found in the Old Covenant or the Old Testament concerning Jesus, the suffering Messiah, and how Jesus fulfilled all these amazing prophecies that took place uh, or were written down centuries many centuries in in most cases, uh, before he was even born, and how he fulfilled every single one of those. Well, today, we're uh, in this session, we're in the book of Exodus, and in our session today, uh, we're going to be looking at a couple of more passages in Exodus. We're not going to be done with it today. There's a lot in Exodus, believe it or not, dealing with the Messiah, the suffering Messiah, and we're going to see so many just absolutely amazing things today as we explore this. And so, um, if you have your Bibles, I hope you um, get your Bible out and study with us if it's possible. I know some of some people listen to these while they're driving to work or um, or they're at work and stuff, and so they can't sit down and do that. And well, God bless you for for listening, even um, whenever you're you're doing this. If you're at work or if you're uh, driving on the road or whatever, or if you're just sitting at home and got. Um, some rest time and you're just wanting to get fed from the Word, I just am so thankful and so happy to, to share this information with you and lead you through this, this Bible study. So um, with that, let's, let's get into this. This is a fascinating study that we have of the book of Exodus, and a lot of people don't realize how much of the book of Exodus is actually messianic. Um, we often think of Exodus as one of these books that primarily uh, just has the, the story of, the, of Moses and the people leaving Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, and, and then going to Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, and getting the Ten Commandments and building the tabernacle. A lot of people have told me they start off loving to read Exodus, but then it gets into all the parts of the tabernacle and it just about kills them. They're like, oh my gosh, this, this is not the most exciting thing uh, to read about the shape of the, of the structure or, or the parts that are in it. But oh, what we're going to see as we get into this is how much this refers to the Messiah. It's fascinating. So, with that, let's start uh, where we left off the last time, and we're going to be today actually starting. Um, this this is going to be number fourteen, um, our fourteenth major prophecy of which I've told you. There's hundreds of prophecies. We're just doing about eighty or so major prophecies. This is the fourteenth major prophecy, and it's from Exodus chapter seventeen. So in Exodus chapter seventeen, we're going to be looking at the first uh, six verses. Um, primarily to, to take a look at this, and I'm calling this, the, this, the topic for this part of the lesson, number 14, is water from the rock. 
water from the rock. And so we'll be taking a look at this fascinating little passage here. The first six uh, verses of Exodus chapter 17. So if you have your Bibles, um, read along. I am doing this primarily through the English Standard Version. As I've told you, it's a word-for-word -word translation. And I like to use this one. And as we, we get into this, um, we, I will use at times, if you've been uh, listening to our lessons, sometimes pull other translations. But just as a base translation, I'm using the English Standard Version. Very popular version. It's one of the uh, top-selling translations of the Bible uh, today. And it's a word-for-word -word translation. So as we pick up then in Exodus 17, in the first six verses, it reads, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of Sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, encamped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us? up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst. So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you will strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So, very famous passage. Most people know this one very well because it's the Moses striking the rock. They've come to, and it mentions here, Horeb. Now, where is Horeb? Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai. And so, Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, it's synonyms in the same place. Now, where is this? Well, many people think, and traditionally, is at the southern apex of the Sinai Peninsula. Actually, I disagree with this because the uh, geography um, all around this story and all the events that take place in the Old Testament at Mount Sinai, because even Elijah goes there, uh, none, none of this fits what you see there, though there's the St. Catherine's Monastery down to the south. Actually, there's about 12 different mountains that people claim as uh, Mount Sinai in the Sinai Peninsula. I don't think it's there at all. Paul tells us in the book of Galatians that Horeb, Mount Sinai, is in Arabia. And there is a place over in Arabia, um, a mountain range, Jabal el-Laws, which means Mountain of the Law. Mm -hmm. That's interesting uh, title for it. That's what the Muslims call it. And uh, Moses, who is a very important prophet for the Muslims, uh, they revere this place. This is a very special place for them, too. And so this is where um, I believe it takes place. Um, we'll be doing a, probably a lesson sometime on the Exodus itself and um, the archaeology and the evidence and stuff that exists for that, because it's, it's tremendous when you see all this, the crossing of the Red Sea and all the things that Moses was instructed to do at this place. But this is where the people are thirsting. Did you notice what God said? I mean, sort of, this, this has to be sort of funny because, in a way, um, it's, God tells Moses, the, you know, the people are thirsty. They're, gonna, they're wanting to kill Moses. They're wanting to stone him, uh, the method of death for the, the Hebrew nation. And Moses says to God, what am I supposed to do with these people? They want to kill me. And God says, don't worry about it. Go over 
take some of the elders, go over and stand by, and I love how it says, stand by the rock of Horeb. Go, don't stand there. So that means there has to be some type of special rock there because that would be in the equivalent. I, where I live, just to give you an idea about this, I live smack dab in the middle of the forest of the northern, uh, northern Wisconsin. I mean, there is nothing around except just lakes. Uh, the closest town's over a 20-minute drive away. It's, we just live out in the middle of nowhere. And uh, I mean, deep, deep in the forest where the, the deer and the bear still roam. And it would be the equivalent of God saying in a way, to, that it seems like, you know, go to this mountain and stand at the rock um, it would be like the equivalent of, of God telling me, oh, Michael, go stand by the tree in the forest. Well, the forest is made of trees. I mean, at Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, it's, it's made of rock. So when God says, go stand at the rock, that means there's got to be some significant rock around there someplace because Moses is probably standing right next to a rock and there's probably rocks around his feet. And God says, go stand at the rock of Horeb, at Horeb. So it's got to be something different. And I do believe that they have, um, historians and archaeologists have found this spot, which is in Arabia, uh, Saudi Arabia. And um, it is up on a mountaintop. You'll see that there is a place here. But um, sort of getting ahead of myself, but this rock that you find there is really interesting because it has a split in it. It's several meters tall and it's split and it's uh, from where the split takes place, it's very rounded and smooth, even up on top of this granite mountain, uh, granite, very hard stone. Um, yet it shows water erosion going from the top all the way down to the valley down below. Really interesting. But um, I wish I could show you a picture, but that's hard to do in a podcast. So I'm just trying to describe what you see here. Also, it's interesting that the whole top of this mountain is charred black because it also tells us in the book of Exodus that God came and stood uh, on, on the top of the mountain and the mountain appeared to be in flame and it was surrounded by smoke and, and like fire. And yet that's what you see if, if you go to this place in Saudi Arabia. Um, there's places you can go on YouTube or whatever and and see some documentation on that. I'll come come back to that part of the lesson later. But it is interesting. Now, back to our thing here. The people are dying of thirst. Um, there's no water to be had. That's part of the problem of being in the desert and stuff. So we're finding the Israelites doing what? Calling out for help. And this time it's for water. They are really thirsty. And so um, they uh, are, are saying, to, complaining to Moses, and actually by complaining to Moses, they're complaining to God also. Um, and so as they've looked through here, they're, um, they're saying, we, we need water. And God is going to oblige them. He's going to supernaturally, this is a miracle where water is going to come out of the top of a mountain, out of a rock. And it even says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. The rock is Christ. Right here, you're starting to see the Messianic prophecy. The rock sitting on Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, represents the Messiah. The people drank from it because um, the water pours out from there. Um, we've already talked about bread from uh, heaven, manna, that Jesus is the bread of life. Now we're seeing that Jesus represents the living water giving to the people so that they do not die. And here it's talking about physical death with the Israelites, the Hebrew nation here. But um, Jesus goes on and uses this same type of symbol of him being the rock. The rock is a messianic title. And it's a special rock, like I say, that you see on top of this mountain. And this is a symbol of the Messiah, who is Jesus. And, and what happens here? 
like with the manna, God is supplying. It's not Moses doing it. It's God is supplying. He is their supplier, just as he is our supplier of of nourishment, of of spiritual water, uh, living water coming out even today. Matter of fact, in John chapter 4, uh, verses 13 and 14, very familiar passage to many of you. That's the woman at the well with Jesus, the Samaritan woman. And Jesus is talking to her and he says in verse uh, 13 and 14, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Stop here. The people who drank the water there in the desert, they got thirsty again. God had to supply them water again at another time. But continuing, uh, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What is Jesus saying here? He is comparing himself, the Messiah, with this story that the Samaritan woman would have been familiar with. They all know this. We all know this from going to Sunday school or watching the movie Ten Commandments, Prince of Egypt. Um, you don't have to be a Christian to know the story of how uh, water came out of the rock and, and saved the people. It, it prevented them from dying. Well, Jesus is our rock for spiritual life, and his, his um, f- uh, water flowing from him is our, just just nourishes our spiritual side, our soul, and we need this. Jesus is claiming here to the woman in the Samaria in John chapter 4 to be the Messiah. And only the Messiah can sustain a man's soul. This is what this is talking about. So we see a, two parallels here. In the Exodus story, there's the physical need. But in the messianic part, it's our soul's need. Jesus supplies it. People who are hungering and thirsting for spiritual nourishment. Jesus is the answer. And when you become a born-again Christian, his spirit then indwells us and fills us. And we can become, and we hope to, just overflow with with his spirit inside of us, feeding us as the bread of heaven, but also nourishing us with um, the living water, not stagnant water, but life-giving water for our spiritual life. That's what this prophecy is all about. So that's the water, um, water from the rock, and that was number 14. We go to number 15. Prophecy number 15 is in Exodus chapter 24. So in Exodus chapter 24, we have what I call the new covenant confirmed. The new covenant confirmed. Now, we're going to look at a number of different verses in this chapter um, and also look at some places in the... Um, in the New Testament and see how Jesus fulfills these. But I want to start off by looking here um, in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 24 of Exodus. So if you have your Bibles and you're following along, let's take a look at um, the first two verses. And it says, Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Arab, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. So what's happening here? What are we seeing in this aspect of this story? Well, in verse 1 and 2, God is speaking, and he's speaking to Moses. He's giving Moses direction that Moses is to approach the Lord 
um, even though he has the 70 elders, um, they can only come to a certain degree. Moses alone is to approach the Lord. This is a major, um, a major uh, concept here that needs to be uh, made very clear. God in this instance is mo- telling Moses, you come to me. Now, who does Moses represent? The Hebrew nation. He is the representative, the leader of the Hebrew nation. He alone, not all of the people, he alone is to come up and meet with the Lord. Moses only. Not even Joshua was allowed to come. Only Moses. And God is going to speak and tell Moses things. Then Moses goes down and gives the information to the people. Do you notice that Moses is the mediator between God himself and the people? Moses is the mediator. You have God the Father and you have the people. In between was Moses. Now that's how it was set up in the Old Covenant here as God is doing this. Moses was God's chosen, shall we say, go-between. He's the go-between, the mediator. Today we have a different mediator. We don't go to Moses. As great as Moses was, he was nothing compared to the mediator we have today who is Jesus Christ. Now, look at this. In Hebrews, if you're following, let's take a look at the book of Hebrews, chapter 3, and um, we're going to look in the uh, first six verses here and see something fascinating about this. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, and much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So what's going on here? This is confirming that Moses is the mediator. But somebody greater than Moses now come. The author of Hebrews is pointing out that Jesus is much greater than Moses. Now remember, this is a book written to the Hebrews. The Hebrew To the Hebrew people, Moses was very important. To curse Moses, even in the New Testament times, to curse Moses, you could be stoned for that because he was God's chosen mediator. So you would never, ever say anything bad against Moses. Well, Moses, as I said, and in this passage here shows, Moses had some glory, but Jesus is far superior to Moses. Now, what was Moses' role? Moses' role was a mediator. That was his primary purpose here. He was the mediator between God and the people. So who is our mediator today? Who is the go-between between God the Father and us? Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. So Jesus has now replaced Moses as the ultimate, the superior uh, mediator between the Father and mankind. So the author of Hebrews doesn't leave it there. He touches on the same topic again in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24. And if you turn there, you're going to see, it's it's as plain as can be. And to Jesus, the mediator 
of a new covenant. I mean, the writer of Hebrews, whoever it was, um, personally, I don't think it was Paul. The, the style of the Greek writing is so different than Paul's other letters. I have no idea um, who it was, but um, I don't know. If, if you're asking me to guess, maybe Apollos? I don't know. As somebody who's an expert in the Old Testament, we know Paul, Apollos was, and there have been some New Testament or uh, some early church writers that did attribute it to, to Apollos, but there was a lot of others that attributed it to other people. So um, whoever wrote it, was an expert of the Jewish um, uh, of the Jewish covenants and stuff. No question about it. He's also a Christian, and he sees things just absolutely amazingly uh, through the Holy Spirit teaching him this that Jesus is now replaced Moses, um, and it's it's phenomenal like that. Uh, Jesus said that he was the way to the Father. Remember John fourteen six. What's Jesus say? Jesus said to him, "I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me." He is the mediator. So if we're going to come to God, we're going to go through Jesus, and he's the only way. And I can't emphasize that enough. Uh, religions all over the world try and find ways to get us to get to heaven or get to God. And it's usually, in almost all cases, it's work-based in some degree. Not so with the truth coming from God, that Jesus is the only one, and he established a new covenant with us, and he is the only way to the Father. I mean, it's as plain as can be. Uh, Jesus says this in John 14. He makes no doubt about it. He calls himself the, the gatekeeper, like of a sheep pen. A sheep pen only has one opening. Um, the tabernacle, the temple, only had one opening coming in. You just can't come in from different ways, and you can't come in in your own way. You've got to come in by the way God tells you to come in by the way God has designed it. We can't make up our own religion and say, okay, I'm going to use this way to get to God. Though many, many people today say, oh, there's a bunch of ways to come to God. Well, that's what they teach, but those are all lies because Jesus is the only way. When he says, no one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus is God and he is telling us just as the temple has one opening, the tabernacle had one opening, to come in, you have to come in by God's method. And Jesus is the doorway. He is the way. Well, anyway, in Exodus, Moses, in the Old Covenant now, the Old Testament, Moses was the way to God. That's how you came. He was the mediator. So you would go through Moses. The people were not allowed to go directly to God. They had to go to Moses to get information uh, from God. That's what it was. And now we have a new covenant. We live in a new covenant period where we, Jesus grants us this, and when we come and accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we now have direct access to the Father because of what he has done. So we can come directly to the Father. Um, we don't go through Moses anymore. No. In Exodus 24, the same chapter now, let's look at verse 8 and see something else that is said here, um, talking about this covenant. And I keep using the word covenant, uh, and I interchange it many times. I've noticed myself doing this. I use the word covenant, and other times I'll use the word testament. Testament and covenant are the same thing. They're synonyms. It's an agreement, a contract. Um, we commonly look at a Bible and we say there's the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you've listened to me speak many times, you know that I often will call it the Old Covenant and the New Covenant of our Bible. Um, so we're in the Old Covenant here, and this is the covenant that was established by Moses and stuff. 
And, um, but you can use the word testament. It's whatever you prefer. Um, I just like, I mean, testament is an, is an old term. People don't use that term for contracts anymore. When was the last time you signed a testament with somebody or made a testament to somebody? It, we don't. We make covenants or we make contracts. We make agreements. That's frequent. That's what the same word is. So that's what that means. Well, in Exodus, Moses was the way to God. The people are coming to him. But in Exodus 24, verse 8, it reads, And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now, there is a covenant. There's an agreement that the people are making with God. God has given them their law, or his law, and they have agreed to this covenant. To seal this covenant, Moses takes blood and um, figuratively just throws it out over the people. Um, and so now they're covered by the blood. And so they can enter into this covenant now with God. Now, look at this. In Mark's gospel, chapter 14, verse 24, listen to the words of Jesus. It reads, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. Isn't that interesting? We see the same parallel from the Exodus account in chapter 24, blood and a covenant being poured out. It's interesting how blood being spilt was necessary for both covenants. Covenants in um, in the Jewish culture, if they were sealed and marked with blood, it was like a permanent or um, a extremely powerful, like unbreakable uh, covenant that's supposed to be broken and stuff. So blood was very, very important for this. And in Exodus 20, uh, 24, verse 11, look at what also we see here having to do with this. God seals a covenant with a special meal, including food and drink. It reads, they beheld God and ate and drank. Now, isn't that interesting that they beheld God and they ate and drank? So um, this covenant was sealed not just by the blood being poured out as Moses takes the blood and scatters it, um, but also it is being, uh, they're, they're having a meal together and drinking together. Now, let's take a look again at Mark chapter 24, talking about the Last Supper and this new covenant it reads, uh, this, we're going to look at Mark 14, 22 through 24. As they were eating, he, this is Jesus, took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. Paul even describes the exact same thing, a new covenant coming into being in, in his first letter to the Corinthians, Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, and when you get to verse 25 and 26, very familiar passage, often read during communion services, the Lord's Supper, uh, during the taking of the elements. Um, we read this, this part here, and here too, they're going to eat and drink in the celebration. Listen to how it reads. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread, drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. But notice it says a new covenant again. So a new covenant was made 
And it was coming, and it's foretold. It's illustrated, the first covenant is illustrated in Exodus 24, but God's going to make a new covenant, which Jesus does there at the Last Supper. He starts to tell them about the new covenant that's taking place, and he's about to shed his blood um, as the sacrifice for all when he goes to the cross uh, the next day. But you know something? This was all prophesied also in another place. In the book of Jeremiah, yes, Jeremiah, God speaks to Jeremiah, and in verses, uh, in chapter 31, starting at verse 31 and going through 34, we're going to read that um, God has already established the old covenant with Moses and the people in Exodus, but he tells Jeremiah, there's coming a day, there's going to be a new covenant. And it reads, this is again, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law in them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I, get this now, get this, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Wow. What a statement. A new covenant is coming. It's going to start with the Jews. It's going to expand out to all the nations. But the thing is, it starts with the Jews. And what is this covenant doing? God will forgive iniquity. Iniquity is another word for sin. God will forgive us our sins and remember our sins no more. Wow. And then Jesus at the Last Supper begins and initiates the new covenant. If you never caught that before, isn't that fascinating? I mean, to me, this, this is just remarkable. You have Exodus, the covenant starting, and then you get, um, it runs for hundreds of years, and then you have Jeremiah coming along, and he says, well, this covenant, Israel broke, I'm gonna make a new covenant, and it's gonna have to do with, uh, when a new covenant comes in, there's gonna be eating, there's gonna be drinking, and to celebrate this, and there's gonna be blood, and that's what Jesus initiates. So the two covenants, um, we have the old covenant, which we had Moses as the mediator, they ate and they drank. In the new covenant, we have Jesus is the superior mediator, and what do the disciples do? They ate and they drank. So that's how that covenant goes. There's another similarity, though. I'm not done with this. Uh, another similarity between Jesus and Moses, again, in chapter 24. We haven't left this chapter yet. We're about to. But one more thing I want to point out to you. It says in verse 18 of Exodus 24, Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, we're going to see, again, the similarity. Some of you probably already caught this. Moses stayed on this desolate mountain without provisions for 40 days and nights until he received instructions on how to set up what? The tabernacle. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, goes into des the desolate wilderness to prepare for his upcoming mission, his ministry, to be the mediator, 
to the people. We can read it in Matthew 4, 1 through 2. Uh, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So we see, again, a similarity, a prophecy. Um, Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days, 40 nights, because Moses, the old mediator, did it. Jesus repeats this, and he does it. Um, and so we see the same thing taking place there. Um, another prophecy that we often don't think about, but these are prophecies um, about this. Let's go to number 16. Um, we'll do one more here uh, in number 16. And this one, I, um, this is chapter 25, Exodus 25. And I'm calling this one the mercy seat cover of the ark. The mercy seat cover of the ark. Now, it's, it's chapter 25 of... Um, of the book of Exodus, and in this, we're starting, this is where some people start to, oh, this is where Exodus sort of starts getting boring because it's talking about the parts, the structures and the buildings and, and things of the tabernacle. Well, let me tell you just in short right now, because this will be more in the next lesson, but let me give you a little preview here. The tabernacle is all about the Messiah. Everything dealing with the tabernacle is all pointing as prophecies dealing with the Messiah, not just the objects that are there, but also what takes place at the tabernacle is going to be fulfilled fulfilled by Jesus. And Jesus fulfills um, even the feasts and stuff. Some of the feasts and the holidays that the Jews celebrated, the Hebrew nation celebrated, these uh, were foretellings of the coming Messiah. Some have not occurred because he's going to come again. He came as the suffering Messiah. So parts of these feasts deal with the suffering Messiah, others with the victorious warrior judge. But in um, this, our 16th prophecy, this passage describing is describing something special. It's the lid to the Ark of the Covenant covenant that's being described for Moses, and then Moses is going to go down and have the people build this, this, this lid. And this lid is very special. Now, I know probably most people have watched Indiana Jones uh, um, and uh, the first one where they're looking for the Ark of the Covenant, and they, they find this thing, and it's, it's really cool how uh, they put this all together and decorated it up and it shows them uh, towards the end of the movie, not to be a spoiler alert, but who in the world hasn't seen this movie, where they pick up the lid, you know, uh, one or two people just pick up the lid and, and take it off at the end to look inside the Ark of the Covenant. Well, <laughs> yeah, that's not exactly uh, accurate as you're going to see here. But anyway, let's, let's get into what, what this is, this lid, because it's a special lid. If you go down to verse 17, it says, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. So they're making a uh, mercy seat, as it's called, the mercy seat. Many translations translate this as atonement cover. And there's a few other translations that'll use different words for it. Um, and this is... Um, Atonement cover is actually a very good term for this. It was, it was actually, in doing some research on this, atonement cover, um, that's not what the word is in the Greek, um, but it was translated as that, um, atonement cover, first by William Tyndall back in 1530. William Tyndall, in his translation uh, of English, um, the Bible into New Testament into English and stuff and, and things, he... Um, he actually called it the atonement cover. Luther, just four years later, picked it up again, and his translation in German of the Bible, he, show, he also uses the word here, instead of using atonement cover, uh, or I'm sorry, instead of using mercy seat, he uses atonement cover. So the term, 
uh, atonement. Why are they using atonement? Well, what is atonement? If you look up the word atonement in, in any theological dictionary, it's going to say it means reconciliation. That's what it means. And reconciliation. Um, this is a cover for reconciliation of the people to God. Um, that, how is that accomplished? How can we, sinful creatures, be reconciled to God? Well, what took place is they would pour blood on this mercy seat. And in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11 speaks about this. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar, talking about this mercy seat, to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So blood is necessary for atonement is what is being said here in the book of Leviticus. Where was the blood poured out? The blood had to be collected. It had to be spilt on the atonement cover. That's where they put it. Now, this atonement cover is really interesting because it gives the dimensions of, of this thing. And sitting in and doing some study on this, this thing would have, uh, th this piece as opposed to other pieces of furniture in the tabernacle, this was made of solid gold. Many pieces of the tabernacle were made of acacia wood and then overlaid with gold. This is solid gold. And by the dimensions that are given, gold, as you know, is extremely heavy metal, a very heavy metal. And being made of solid gold, it would have weighed somewhere around, this cover, about 750 pounds. No one person's gonna pick this up and just you know, toss it aside. This thing is heavy. And 750 pounds. So I did a little checking just a little bit uh, before I started this recording to find out what the value of 750 pounds of pure gold would be. It comes out to be $21,313,000. That's a lot of money. That was a, a very, very pure thing. It had to be pure. So gold, a pure element. Um, it's not a, a, an alloy or something. It was pure gold that was used for this. Well, where did they get that kind of gold? Remember, when they came out of Egypt, they plundered the gold of the Egyptians. So they had the gold. They had a lot of gold that they're carrying around. A lot of times we don't think about that, that they're carrying literally tons and possibly uh, um, maybe a couple of tons of gold uh, distributed among the people and stuff as they're carrying it as they go along. But this is um, the uh, atonement cover, and that's what it's for. And as it says in Leviticus chapter 16, verses 14, 15, and 16, it reads, And they shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with the fingers, his fingers seven times. Then he shall kill the goat. And the sin offering that it is for the people, bringing its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkle it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanliness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins." And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanliness. So this passage tells us where the blood is going to be applied. It's applied to the top of this atonement cover. So what happens when they would put the blood there? It tells us in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 2, what happened? Because I appear in the cloud over 
the atonement cover. Over the mercy seat, God would manifest. He would appear there. Yes, this is a very special place. God himself would appear over the atonement cover, over the mercy seat. This is where he spoke words to Moses. In, in other words, God appears where the blood was spilt. Did you catch this? Just as Jesus appeared on the cross when his blood is spilt for the atonement of the world. 1 John 2.2 2, um, and Romans 3.25. Um, let's look at these two verses and see the comparison. In John, 1 John, not the gospel, the, uh, John's uh, 1 John uh, letter to the epistle of First uh, John 2, 2, here it is. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. And look over at Romans chapter 3, verse 25, and it reads, Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This is to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. He's passing over our sins. You see what's going on here is the, the word atonement, which is often used is, as the cover, actually is the same name. In many translations, they use this. It's the same word that's used as propitiation. Now, here's another one. We said that atonement, um, the definition basically of atonement is reconciliation. Well, Atonement, the atonement cover is basically this mercy seat was also called the propitiation. In the New Testament, it's called propitiation. What's the, the term propitiation? It's the act of appeasing another person's anger by offering a gift. That's the word propitiation. I know that's a, that'd be a great word for a Scrabble game, um, particularly if you get triple word. Um, boy, that's, that's, a, that's a lot of points there. But that's, uh, atonement means, let's get this clear, atonement means reconciliation. This seat was called the atonement cover or the mercy seat. God is giving us mercy from our sins. It's also called propitiation. The, uh, the blood being poured there on this mercy seat is appeasing God's anger. Now, some people don't like to use the word propitiation. There are some theologians that just will not use that word, and they don't like it because it's actually a very old word that was used in many pagan religions on with their gods that they had, their idols, would often get angry with people, and people would have to do something to appease the gods. And the word that was often used all through many different ancient cultures was the word we have to um, use propitiation. We've got we to gotta give a gift to the gods to make them happy again. So some uh, Christian theologians do not like to use the, pro the word propitiation, but God does get angry with sin. And they don't like to use it because they say, well, God's a God of love and not a God of anger. No, God gets angry with sin. This is an appropriate word. So just because it was used in pagan religions or because it uses um, the statement that God is, we're trying to appease God's anger, God does get angry. One of Satan's biggest lies going around today is that God is just a God of peace and love. And I mean, it's almost like the hippies movement in the 60s. Just peace and love. Let's sit and hold flowers and um, just sit around and, and just think about the love of God all the time. God also gets angry. He hates sin. He loves us, but he hates our sin. So we have to have a propitiation. Sin cannot be just overlooked. Blood has to be shed. Blood was placed on this cover. Jesus 
gave his blood, as we talked about already in the New Covenant. Jesus gave his blood as a sacrifice on the cross. He is our propitiation. He is uh, the one who gives us atonement. It's Jesus. He didn't come at this point as a Messiah of war and power and judgment, as most of the Jews were expecting. He came as a suffering Messiah offering atonement and propitiation. That God's, the Father God's anger will be poured out upon him because he will take our sins. And then as he says, and then I will remember their sins no more. You see that the Messiah is a bridge of the great divide between fallen man and a holy God. Also note that these two verses that we just read in 1 John 2, 2 and Romans 3, 25, talking about the propitiation, um, these two verses tell us that we are saved by faith. Romans 3.25 directly says that, propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. We do not go out and do works to appease God. If that's how you're trying to make God happy, if that's how you're trying to get to God, if that's how you're trying to, to work out your salvation by doing deeds and works and, and, and things like this to appease an angry God, you've got the whole thing screwed up. Because it tells us right here in Romans 3.25, talking about this whole thing back in Exodus uh, with the atonement cover, we're saved by faith through grace, God's grace, but our faith. It's not of works. If it's works, we become prideful, and we're already that. We don't need any more of that. We become very prideful of our salvation. Well, look at me. I've preached more sermons than you have, or, oh, I've taught more Sunday school classes, or I've worked in Awanas longer than you. I mean, there's, uh, I've served on, I've gone on more mission trips than you. People would boast. That is nothing to be boasted about. No. The thing we should boast about is how Jesus atones for all our sins, that his blood was used once and for all. Well, we're out of time for this uh, anymore today. And uh, as we've gone through this one, this has been a little bit of a longer lesson than the last couple, but um, there's just, there was just so much in here and I just find it so interesting. Um, how you compare Exodus with, with the whole story of Jesus. It, it just really comes out, and he is the mercy seat. He is. That's where, where God was manifest. God became, um, was manifest, visible. He spoke from there. Jesus is this. He is the one. God becoming um, this flesh and, and dwelling among us. And uh, there at the mercy seat, Jesus is the mercy seat. And his blood was poured out. Not the blood of some animal. His own blood was poured out. I hope you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. I pray that you have accepted his free offer of grace through faith. Don't try and work your way to God. It doesn't work. And the only way you can come to God is through Jesus Christ. Do you know him as your Lord and Savior? Have you put your faith in him? In other words, have you trusted him to save you? Have you committed your life to him? And when I say that, that doesn't mean you're going out and going to go to Africa and the deepest parts to be a missionary. You commit your life. Just you live your life for him. He died for you. How about you living for him? Well, thank you so much for joining. And our, our lesson here today, uh, we'll get back into this and we'll be going into the tabernacle next and seeing the similarities of Jesus. And I want to thank you so much for, for joining Evidence for Faith. And I know many people have, are praying for our ministry as this is still new. Um, we've only been going since May of 2021. And 
we've had so many people who have said, we're praying for your ministry. We have many people who have said, well, you know, we want to get involved. We want to help not just pray for you guys and support you and uh, giving a special gift or something. And we would appreciate that. That helps because we don't charge for our ministry. Um, everything is free. Me going out to different places, I, I do not have a set fee. Um, going to speak at uh, schools, churches, organizations, uh, etc. I don't charge for it. I only ask if they would please cover our transportation costs, if they would do that, um, and uh, you know, make sure that we have a place to stay or something. Uh, but we don't want to charge. I do not want to charge people to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't want to charge people to find out more about Jesus so that they then can grow in their spiritual life. God gave these gifts to us for free outside of Jesus' payment. We, we, don't, we don't do anything. Um, Jesus did it all. So we just accept by faith his grace and his mercy. And so if you would please help us in this as we're uh, coming to the end of this year, uh, we'd greatly appreciate it. And if not, I know some families, you just can't afford it and that's fine. Uh, God will supply and we're just trusting him. But I hope um, you'll come back and for another one of the lessons here very soon. Thank you. Remember, you can go to our website, pull up more stuff. Um, we're trying to get as many things on the website as we can, uh, just with the time available and stuff, and trying to write these things and put them together. Um, so please check out our website, see where I'll be speaking, and see uh, what other um, ministry opportunities we have for you to, to be able to grow in your relationship with Christ. Thanks so much. Until we meet again, take care and God bless. I hope you enjoyed that episode. A big thank you is due to our donors for making this ministry possible. Once again, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org give. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org give. And help us keep this broadcast free. You can also support us by sharing, subscribing, and leaving a review on this podcast. If you would like to hear Michael live, you can also check out our bookings calendar at evidenceforfaith.org or book your own event with Michael. So this is Charlotte signing off. I'll see you on the next episode.